foundation of Christ. Amen? Pray with me. God, we trust in you. God, there is no other fount that we know that can satisfy like you, Lord. God, you do not lead us into the dark, but God, you lead us into your marvelous, glorious light. God, we worship your name because your name alone is worthy of our praise. God, be with us this morning. Open our hearts to hear what you have for us. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, and 3, verses 1 through 4. It can be found beginning on page 983 in the Bible under your seat. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And from Colossians 3, 1 through 4, on the next page, 984. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity, and I'm really excited to begin uh, this series with you this morning. We're calling this series Recalibrate. And essentially, the reason why we're doing this series is, is to ask two questions, what and how. Namely, what is it that we find important? What do we value here at Trinity? And then how do we specifically, as, as Trinity Community Church, go about pursuing the things that we value? And so what we're going to do, we're going to work our way through our, our four core values as a church— Gospel, which is today, and then worship, community, and mission. Although I think the order might be slightly different than that. But in any case, these are sort of core values for us. And also, they would probably be core values for any faithful, believing Christian church across the globe and across the ages. Right? I think most believers in Jesus would affirm a core commitment to gospel, worship, community, and mission. And so, we're going to walk through... Through those, but then also the, the goal is to walk through how we specifically, as Trinity Community Church, are going to act on those values, how we're going to pursue those values. Uh, and, and so there, there, there'll be a little bit of practical things, a lot of sort of principles to go off of, and I think it'll be really useful for us as a church, an important thing, especially as we move out of this transition into um, the next phase for us as a church. And so I would also just add finally, that as we go through this series, if questions occur to you or feelings or ideas or, or whatever, 
we as the elders would love a kind of a, a feedback loop. So feel free to email us at elders at trinitylink.com or reach out to us. Um, pull on our sleeve after church or anything. We, we'd love to hear kind of how you're interacting with the series as we go along. So I think that's all I've got by way of preamble. So if you'd join me in prayer, we'll start the series with the central value, the value on which all the others rise and fall, the gospel. Lord Jesus, um, I'm admittedly intimidated to to preach on the gospel, though it's in some way the content of of every sermon that we preach here at Trinity. Um, It's something so simple and yet also so just bottomlessly profound. I pray, Lord, that, that our time together today would result in praise, in thankfulness for, for what you have accomplished by grace alone, the cross and the resurrection. I love you, Lord. Amen. So to start out, what, what is the gospel? At its simplest... The gospel is that Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, that, that God himself has become flesh and walked among us and has accomplished this great work through the cross, the resurrection, and his ascension. Now, what, what's good news about that? And that's what I want to explore today. What is so good about the fact that God has done that? So why is the gospel good news? So there, there's... Tons of reasons, but today we're going to only encounter three of them. And the first is that the gospel announces that our sins can be forgiven. So it's interesting, the word that, that's translated as sin a lot in our Bibles, the, the most literal translation is miss the mark. To miss the mark. When someone sins, they're missing a mark. So what does that mean? What's the mark that they're missing? Well, in the minds of the biblical writers, our, our world, there is a unified logical order to the world we live in. There's a logical order to how humans were meant to live. In other words, there's a, there's a design. There is a design. And so when we deviate from that design plan, when we deviate from the order, we're, we're missing the mark of how a human is supposed to function. That at its core, sin is moving away from functional humanity into dysfunctional humanity. And the writers of Scripture would say that this this order of things was put in place by an all-powerful, loving, good God. And they believed that God had made that order known through his Scriptures, but also that he'd made it known through, like, the human conscience, through just that kind of tug that we all feel away from certain behaviors and toward other behaviors. They, They even thought that we were held accountable by it. And so when humans miss the mark, it's a big deal. It's not just that they're thinking outside the box, right? When humans deviate from that design, they're communicating something. We communicate something. We communicate that we are more capable of defining right and wrong than the one who defines right and wrong. We're communicating that that we have some new and innovative ideas we'd really like to try out with this whole design plan, and we think it's going to really work well. We're communicating that we'd rather receive glory than give it. We're communicating that we know how the world ought to be run. And it breaks the relationship with the Creator. 
in some ways, in some ways, it is treasonous. And now this has become a part of human nature. We weren't created as sinners, but we've become sinners. The writers of the Bible, they believe that when, when the original humans sinned, they exiled all of humanity away from their creator. All the humans that would come from them exiled all of us in a spiritual sense that now all of us have the same drive to decide right and wrong in our terms. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are estranged from our maker. And the significance of that for us is that, that because we're estranged from our maker, estranged from the designer, we're also estranged from beauty, from life, from meaning, from purpose, from intimacy, from functionality. We are strangers in this world, strangers in our own bodies and strangers to each other. Without the center, without the creator, without a relationship to him, there is no center and everything around it crumbles. One Christian economist describes this as a breaking of relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. And here in Colossians, Paul describes this condition as a kind of death. To be cut off from God, to be enslaved to sin is a kind of spiritual death. So like what he's saying is, okay, so sure, your vitals might be fine. You might have a pulse. But without a relationship between you and the creator, without that being restored, the, the most fundamental thing about you is missing. Spiritual life is absent. You're dead. And the result... In other places of the Bible, you learn that the result of this is the sense of shame. This kind of like innate knowledge that we have that we're guilty of something. There's, there's a psychologist, I think his name is Robert J. Griffiths. I should have checked that before I started quoting him, but I think his name is Robert J. Griffiths. Um, but he, I don't know where he stands faith-wise, but he has this, you know, in his clinical practice, he's observed that humans function... He calls it with the knowledge of some long ago fault, some long ago ambiguous fault. That each of us have this sense of, I'm not quite right. I'm not quite right with the world. Some sense of, I think there's something I'm supposed to be doing. Can you relate to this? Just this ambiguous, weird sense that I'm falling short of something. And the phrase that we want to use for that is shame. It's like a stain on our conscience that we can't clean out, no matter how hard we try. It's there. And so we can either suppress it or we can confront it, right? We can either suppress it or we can, can confront this sense of shame. This whole idea of sin and separation from God and shame and guilt, this has been dealt with in different ways. The Christian explanation of this has become especially unpopular. In, in modern psychology, shame has come to be considered by, in some schools, not all, but in some schools of thought, a, what they call negative emotion. So it's a counterproductive emotion. It doesn't help you 
to, to feel shame, right? And, and, and the assumption is there's no, there's no guilt standing behind it. You're not feeling shame because there's some real guilt standing behind that. And so shame is sort of just useless. So you need to, to deal with your shame. And what they mean by that is, notice how shame, what it does to your, your psyche. When, you, when you're ashamed of an action, or when you feel shame, there, you sort of take something you did, and you quarantine it. Right? This is how some psychologists would describe this. You quarantine that action, you set it aside, and you're kind of repulsed by it. Like it's diseased, right? And they would say, you shouldn't do that. That's a part of yourself. Don't make any sort of moral judgment on yourself. Love yourself. Integrate it all. Don't say, I'm bad, I'm good. That's useless. Just come to love yourself. Find your identity. And and you'll be free. Something will be done with your shame. But shame's keeping you from your identity. From having... a a real sense of worth from being who you're meant to be. Shame keeps you from that. And now many psychologists over the years, they, they've, they've begun to push back against, against that school. So, so some of you may, may know Jordan Peterson. He's kind of this like viral sensation. He's an interesting dude. You know, he, he started to become known for telling people that they, they need to take moral responsibility. Because here's the thing. When, when you just... When you ignore shame, when you completely ignore it, and you're going to a counselor over and over and over again who's telling you, like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Something horrifying happens. You start to believe there's nothing wrong with you. Right? And so the result hasn't been good people coming out of these sorts of counseling sessions. Narcissists have been coming out of these counseling sessions. Terrible people have been coming out. And so you've got guys like Jordan Peterson. He's getting this big following because he's saying, no, 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 what you do matters. He's, he's telling people, you've got to take moral responsibility. You, you can't establish your identity. You can't establish worth outside of morals. You need to create some moral character here, man. Something has to be done about your sin. He, he, he used different words, but essentially that's it. Something's got to be done about your sin. So what you've got to do is you've got to confront the evil in yourself, confront the evil in the world, and when you do that, when you become the sort of person who does that, then, then you, you have an identity. You're really somebody, right? You're a person of, of character. You find yourself. And so we've got Peterson and his group versus sort of the modern psychologists. Let's invite Paul to the conversation. So Paul, I think, would say that out of the two options, Peterson's probably closer to the truth. Like, it's better to acknowledge, like, if you're feeling shame, let's entertain the possibility that there's something behind that, right? Like, that's what Paul would want to would wanna say, is like, don't just, don't ignore that. That's intense. Let's think about Maybe you might be guilty of something. So he would say Peterson's closer to the truth because at least he acknowledges that there's something real here. He's, he's not just disregarding an entire part of human experience. And so I think Paul would affirm something in, in what Jordan Peterson is saying. Like, yeah, moral responsibility is, is important. Humans are noble creatures. They were made to represent God's character. And so... They're made for something bigger than themselves. All the things that, that Jordan Peterson is attractive for, Paul would kind of affirm. Like, yeah, humans are meant to be these, these incredible creatures of moral beauty. The problem is, moral character really can't do anything about shame. 
moral responsibility, being a good person, it's not going to help you with your shame. It's a big part of what you're meant to be. It's a big part of what God made you to be. But it won't help you with your shame. You can't deal with shame when you're dead. No matter how moral you are. Because without that relationship with God, without something being healed between us, we are cut off from the source of life. If we're really going to find a sense of worth, identity, meaning, connectedness, intimacy, the solution's going to have to be given for sin, and the solution's going to have to come from outside of us. And so I think Paul would say something kind of like this. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The, the, the problem, this problem of finding our identity, of, of, of confronting the shame that we all feel, in the middle of that dilemma, the gospel is announced. The gospel is announced to the deepest existential anxieties of humanity. That's what it's relevant for. It is addressing the deepest part of ourself. The question of what am I missing? The gospel announces the answer to that question and how you can find it. Paul says that when we evaluate ourselves and we recognize that that there are wrongs we're, we're at fault for, shame is the right response. We have reason for shame. And the reason why is because we are responsible for severing a relationship with life itself. We have rejected God's definition of us, God's definition of right and wrong. We've rejected him, the being we were made for, and there's a sense in which we have, like, real legal debt on our heads. What we've done is treason. And so when we, when we feel that creeping, ambiguous sense of, I'm completely at, in the wrong, aren't I? Yeah. We're right. There is a debt on our heads. I think the, the thing that we're fearing behind that shame is also real. I think that with shame comes a sense of fear, a sense of fear that the debt that we owe is one day going to be demanded of us. And that's right. The debt we owe will be demanded of us. The way, like we can't live our lives in rejection of goodness itself and, and end up with any destiny other than having all goodness taken away from us. So the answer isn't to try to deny any debt exists. The answer isn't to try to say, there's nothing wrong with me, nor is the answer to say there's something wrong with me and I have all the power necessary to change it. Neither of those are good options. Instead, we're told that God has done everything necessary 
to, to deal with our problem. We're told that our debt was nailed to the cross. So what's meant by that? Jesus shows up on the scene. He is God in the flesh. And he's doing something very interesting. We've been working through the, the book of Matthew, and so we see that Jesus shows up, and, and he's acting as this representative for us, living the, the most genuinely human life, the most perfect human life that we have ever seen. And, and he lives that life. He demonstrates what, what the world is under God's rule. And then as an innocent victim, he suffers our punishment. After living the way that that humans ought to live, he dies the way that bad humans ought to live, or ought to die, right? He dies the way we ought to die. He suffers the condemnation of us. And he stands in as this, like, representative, so that when Jesus is up on the cross, it is our debt being paid for. He suffers the punishment that we all deep in our guts feel we deserve because we do. He suffers that punishment. And when he suffers it on our behalf, that punishment is satisfied. There is no remainder. There is no leftover. There's no extra something that we still have to make up for because Jesus got like 90% of the way and now it's up to you to do the other 10. He does the whole thing on the cross. It's satisfied entirely because Jesus alone was worthy to avoid it. God in the flesh gives himself for humanity. Christianity is unique, right? Because it says, yes, your shame is real. There's a debt you owe. And it says that it's too steep a debt for you to pay back. You can't overcome it simply by fostering an identity of moral character, even though the result of what Jesus did is this new resource to become a person of moral character. That's not what's going to deal with this debt. It's not enough. Something else has been done about your shame. Someone else has stood in for you so that you can take on his identity. You can't establish a meaningful identity on your own. He has given you one. Now, that's not to say that as Christians, we don't still feel that creeping sense of shame. But when we do, when we, when we feel it, we shouldn't say, oh no, that guilt still stands. Instead, whenever we feel that sense of shame, we have the broken body of Jesus to announce to us in no uncertain terms, it is finished. The cause for your shame has been resolved. When God looks at you, He sees beloved child. He sees Jesus. You have died. The gospel announces that our sins can be forgiven. Secondly, the the gospel announces that we've been set apart. We've been set apart. So in verse 13, Paul describes humanity not only as being dead in in our trespasses, but he uses this phrase, the uncircumcision of our flesh. What does he mean by that? Why are we talking about circumcision? So, what, like, so Paul's writing out of this, the long-standing traditions of Judaism and, and the Old Testament. And so in order to get at what he means, we, we've got to go back in the Bible's story. So very early on in the history of the Bible, 
in the book of Genesis, the first book, God instructs Abraham, the, the, the father of the whole nation of, of Israel, Abraham's going to circumcise all the males in his family, and that tradition's going to be maintained for all the ages to come, right? The males are going to be circumcised. And circumcision actually wasn't that, all that uncommon in the ancient world. It was actually a pretty, you know, pretty, pretty common practice. But God takes up this custom that would have been familiar to Abraham, would have been familiar to, to the nations that Abraham was going to encounter. And he stru- instructs Abraham to do it because it will communicate something. It will communicate something to Abraham. It will communicate something to the nations around him. And it's very, very profound. Circumcision was a way of marking yourself off. It was a way of saying in the most vulnerable terms possible that you belong to something, or in this case, someone. It meant that you'd been set apart. And and so through this sign, the Israelites would, would be reminded constantly that they had been set apart for God, that they'd been set apart for a new purpose. Or rather, it's not that it's a new purpose, right? It's, that's, it's the oldest purpose. It, it, the interesting thing about Israel is that they had been set apart to be this like charter for a new humanity, the restoration of humanity. They'd been set apart for God, to worship the true God, to be his people, and to bring his presence to creation. I think that's another, another part of what we as people feel so disconnected from. I was reading an article in the Atlantic a few months ago, just on the Atlantic blog online, and I'm trying to remember what, what exactly it said, but essentially that millennials and, and the generation after more and more are, are not thinking that they're going to be satisfied in their vocation. They're sort of ruling that out, right? And that a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose is becoming harder and harder to, to even approximate to satisfy in, in any way. Instead, jobs, hobbies, all these things are, are becoming harder and harder. It's harder and harder to, to feel a sense of, of purpose and meaning. And so I, I think maybe millennials are, are having that experience, but I think all of us have that sense of disconnection, that, that what I'm made for, I'm falling short of that, whatever it is. And that's part of what makes sin so disruptive. Sin, because it drives us away from the God who defines us, the God who gave us meaning, it drives us away from meaning. Away from the worship of the true God, away from our purpose to represent him in the world, sin is subhuman. It, it, creates, it makes us into something less than what humans are meant to be. And so Paul can say that we are spiritually uncircumcised. We aren't set apart. We aren't marked off for God and for true meaning. We're not set apart for God, but there is a sense in which we've been set apart for something. There's this theme throughout Scripture that that sin, through sin, humans sort of enslave themselves to idols. It's not that humans cease worshiping. We cease worshiping the right thing. Instead, we begin to to, to worship ambition or sex or or money or perfect body or or intelligence or whatever. We we find something, and there's even more to this. In in the scriptures, there's this 
theme that you, you find that behind all these false gods are dark spiritual powers. That there are minds in, in our world that exist behind these idols and they are enslaving us and they hate God, they hate you. And they are using these false gods to wrest power from the creator. Paul sometimes calls them the rulers and principalities. We've become enslaved to things that are not worthy of our worship, and yet we're building our lives on them. Just ongoing slavish devotion, slavish devotion to things and to the things operating behind those things. So what does the gospel say to this? How can this be changed What can be done about the idols? What can be done about the rulers and principalities? We're told that they are defeated in the forgiveness of sins. Notice in in verse 13 that Paul, he says that we're dead in the trespasses, in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. But then, like the uncircumcision of the flesh thing isn't really addressed. He just says that we've been forgiven all our trespasses. That the forgiveness of sins addresses both of those problems. Right? And so here's what we get. When Jesus died, he wasn't just saving us from the consequences of sin. He was saving us from sin. We are incapable of living the way we were meant to live unless the relationship can be patched between us and God. And so even if we live moral lives, right? Let's think this out. Even if we live moral lives, but we live moral lives in the service of an idol— what good is that? That's like cheating on your spouse and being like, now, I've been really faithful to the other woman. Like, how is that at all a helpful thing, right? But in Christ, humans are given a new relationship with God. And so the powers have their powers stolen from them. Because for those who repent and believe in Jesus, they turn away from devotion to the idols. They turn toward devotion to God, and they, the, the power of the idols is broken. Paul puts it like this. Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's it's interesting. So the way that, that Jesus accomplished this, let me back up. Paul's making a reference to something that would have been somewhat familiar in the Roman world. When the when the Romans overcame an enemy, they would do some horrible things to to especially the kings of that enemy. It would involve disarming them. The word that's translated disarm, it's probably strip. They'd strip them down, put them into public shame, and march them in front of the, the Roman citizens. It's pretty horrifying practice. So Paul uses that image to describe what Jesus does to the opposing spiritual forces. But here's what's really powerful about it. That when Jesus stripped the powers and authorities, he did it by being stripped. By, by being disarmed. By being hung naked. That when Jesus put them to public shame, he did it by being put to public shame. By having onlookers spit on him while he gasped away his life. That when Jesus triumphed over them, he did it by being conquered. 
that through the cross, Jesus is having victory over the powers because in the cross he is defeating sin. And with it comes this freedom to come to God and to begin to live the way you were made to live. Which leads us into point three. The gospel, through the gospel, it's good news because Christ has done everything necessary to give us new life. Chapter three, one through four. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me take a sip of my coffee real fast. So we've talked about how in Christ's death, our, our identity is sort of exchanged for his and that doesn't just happen in his death. Um, one of the profs at Trinity has this way of, of describing this whole concept. This concept, by the way, it, it's called the union with Christ. A lot of times theologians will talk about union with Christ. And so this theologian who, who's at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School right now, he has this way of describing it where he says, so imagine that Jesus is the locomotive of a train. And the train is about to descend into a valley, Right? So the valley sort of represents spiritual death, the condemnation for our sins, the punishment that we deserve. So this locomotive is, is climbing over the hill and it's plummeting down into spiritual death itself, the punishment for sin. And behind it are many, many, many cars of, of the train, right? Now, if you were to take one of those cars of, of, of that train and you know, like give it a hard push and it would, you know, bring it down to the valley, it would have no power to get out of that valley. It would remain there. But when that train car is coupled to the locomotive, then when that locomotive plummets down, it's going to pull those train cars with it, and when it comes out of that valley on the other side, it's going to pull those train cars with it. That because of what, what Christ has accomplished in the cross, not only can we, can we, can we you know, see this answer to our shame, but we, we have it this, this sign that new life has also been given to us. That just as Jesus rose to new life, so you will rise to new life. It's as though, without us even realizing, like an Indiana Jones situation, right, where he's like changing the thing, like, it's like a new life has been exchanged in us that will persist beyond the point when our bodies die, but has begun now. So he describes this as our life being hidden in Christ. Our hope is not that we will just be resuscitated into the same bodies, the same sin, the same illness. We will be resurrected. And I'm convinced that's the only sufficient hope that we have in the face of death. That when you actually face the possibility of terminal illness, that when you are actually confronting the final moments of a loved one and know that this is it, and, and you're racked by anger, and you're racked by sadness, and you're racked by doubt, 
that in the middle of all of that, you can realize that hope isn't contingent on you or your strength in that moment. That your life is hidden with Christ and he is sufficient to get you through the darkness. Christians, when Christians die, they trust fall into dying. And Christ is there to catch us. We will be made new. All things will be made new. Paul says that on the day when Christ appears to finish human history, restore all things, you too are going to show up. Whole, new, complete, happy. And the incredible thing is that that because Christ has died, this new life, it, it will persist beyond your death, but it begins now. That we now have access to this kind of resurrection life, not, not complete fulfillment, but that because our sins have been dealt with, we can actually begin to experience the sort of life that God intended for humanity. And we, we, we will pursue that against resistance, right? The resistance of our own heart, the resistance of the systems of the world. But we will experience it. I, I think that that's something I've been thinking a lot about as I, I've been looking into this Jordan Peterson guy a little bit more. I think he's, he's so compelling because he's calling people to a beautiful way of life. And yeah, I think he's totally mistaken that like morality by itself, basically moralism can get you anything as far as, you know, identity or eternal salvation or anything like that. But I think what makes him really attractive to a lot of people is the fact that he's telling them that their choices matter, that it's a beautiful thing to be human. And, and, And as believers, when we announce the gospel to people, we are announcing to them because of what Jesus has done, your identity can be established in him and you can experience what it means to be human. Because that is why Jesus gave us the example of his life. Like in Christ, he is leading us into true humanity. But without fear, without the, the burden of, you know, the burden is off of us to try to, to earn our way. Instead, the pressure is off. The most important things have been resolved. And so we can walk into new humanity without fear, guilt, shame, New life begins. And so what what can we expect that to look like? We can expect to love others more. We can expect to feel awe at God. We can expect to have an increasing need to be around God's people. We can expect to see sinful habits being beaten over time. We can expect a desire for God and his kingdom. We can expect to look a little bit more like Jesus, we can expect to have longing. And I'm not talking like fun longing, like, oh my goodness. When is the... But sometimes the longing that we experience that like leaves us weeping, right? It's burdened by the world, but because of what Jesus has done, watching for new creation. I, I, I think that we can expect to want more and more what God wants. We can expect a reservoir of, of strength. I'm not talking like triumphalistic, oh man, you can't even touch me strength. I'm talking about, I never thought I'd make it through. I'm exhausted. The only way I'm standing here is because Jesus is making me stand kind of strength. And most of all, I think we can expect hope. 
Because the final gift of the gospel is that death itself is overcome. So why is the gospel good news? At the end of the day, it's good news because Christ has given us everything we need. Because Christ is sufficient for us. Christ has done everything necessary to make us right with God. Because Christ is making us into a new humanity. Because Christ is going to restore everything. Because one day we are going to hear him declare over all creation, Behold, I make all things new. That is why the gospel is good news. It is good news for your past. Because your past faults are absorbed in the cross. It's good news for your present because Jesus is teaching you how to be human again. It's good news for your future because death does not have the final word over you. Jesus does. And that changes us. It recenters our life around his concerns. That's why this sermon had to precede worship. This sermon had to come before community. This sermon had to come before mission. Because all of that stuff is made possible because of what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus heals the relationship with God so that we can love and know the one who made us. That's worship. God brings us into a new family, the family of his household, the church, where we find love, safety, imperfections, sure, but also support. We're we're together. We find fellowship. That's community. And finally, he invites us to participate in pushing his kingdom in the world, not as the main driver. He's the main driver. But we participate in his mission to announce that Jesus is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's what we call mission. Praise God for the gospel. It is the center of our faith. It has been from the beginning. It is what we share, no matter that we're Protestants, we share this with all faithful Orthodox Roman Catholics. This is the center of Christianity. Without it, everything else falls. It is the message that heals us. It is the message that brings us together. It is the message that sends us out. The gospel is Christ given for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you have accomplished. We thank you, Lord, that that you have given us your word, that we can find in it these these accounts of your life, the explanation for what you you did. And I pray, Lord, that as we recalibrate as a church, something I expect us to do yearly, something like this, right? To to again take our, our pulse, see how we're doing, Lord, we must inevitably begin with how we are relating to the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would recalibrate us to be even more of a gospel-centered church, that, that because of what Jesus has done, we would find worship irresistible. I pray, Lord, that because of what Jesus has done, gossip would disappear from us, disunity would disappear from us, that we would be able to to disagree and love at the same time. I pray that we pour ourselves out for each other, as I've already seen that happening in this church. I pray that the gospel would express itself as love in the midst of this congregation, Lord, because of what, because Jesus was sent. I pray, Lord, that you would send us, that we would pursue your mission in the world, to announce this news that would bubble up from inside of us because it's just too good to keep secret. I pray that when we encounter the lost in our community, that we would give them the best thing we have.
which is you. We love you, Lord. Amen.